This is the VIP Podcast, Virginia in Politics. Let's listen to host Chris Saxman explore the personalities and policies that connect the Commonwealth. The VIP Podcast is brought to you by the VCTA, Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the VCTA and Virginia Free or our sponsors. All right, this is Chris Saxman on the VIP podcast brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free, of which I am the executive director. Joining us this morning, our brand new VIP senator, my senator, Siobhan Donovan, Dr. Siobhan Donovan. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, big news. You, uh, you're, you're now a grandma. I am. I am. I have a three-week-old baby boy, Cole, and he's magnificent. Wow. What's it like moving from being a doctor in, you know, delivering, as the, as the, as the sign says behind you, delivering, uh, to being a grandmother now? I mean, is it, is, it, is it different? You know, I am really bad about processing major life events in the moment. And so it took me months to be comfortable calling being called Mrs. It took me years to be comfortable being called doctor. I'm still not comfortable being called senator. So I I can't really tell you. I can just say he is extraordinary. And that is from an unbiased clinical standpoint. Look, I'm the mom (laughs) that always thought it was my kids that were wrong. I wasn't like the glamorizing mom. I was the accountability mom. But this kid is amazing. He holds eye contact. He doesn't cry. He's just remarkable. I just wish I could see him every day. Perfect. Now, where do they live? Charlotte. Oh, oh, okay. So that's a, that's a bit of a hike. Not too bad. Four hours, less than four hours. But uh, so why do you think it is, uh, Dr. Senator Siobhan, uh, why is it that you don't accept these new stages of life? Is that because you're so busy multitasking and getting stuff done, you don't have time to absorb it? Or is it just something you eschew? You just don't like make that part of your persona? What is that? That's an interesting observation of yourself. It is. And it's, it's one I've recognized before. I think it's a couple of things. I honestly was brought up to not be me-centered. Mm-hmm. So I usually am looking at the context of the situation I'm in. And I think, um, you know, and, and then I think I'm very analytical. And so it's hard to you make those emotional leaps. Even when I took my first baby home, it really took me sick. And I tell my patients this because a lot of moms feel this way. Nobody tells them, you know, it's a job. You're home, you're up, you're feeding, you're working, you're sore, you're tired. And then all of a sudden the baby smiles at you and it triggers this biochemical event. And so I think that I am so um, task oriented and mm-hmm. analytically oriented that it's hard for me to like just bloom with emotion. So I, I don't know, but that's my best guess. No, that's, it's, it's fascinating uh, self-discovery, self-awareness. And I'll, I'll never forget our first meeting uh, with, at the Starbucks, if you remember over on Gas yes, Road. That's right. And I looked at your resume, a friend of yours sent it over to me and I read through it. I was like, I'm getting tired just reading this thing. <laughs> I mean, it's literally like, <laughs> this is like, <laughs> you're doing too much. Was I, was I was like, I feel totally underutilized as a human being when I read your resume. So I can see how the, the task orientation of your life uh, really has defined you. Uh, you're you know, a quite accomplished uh, person. There's very few who are in the medical field uh, and also serving in the legislature because it's so demanding on your time. But let's talk about healthcare. It's an area of expertise for you. What do you see are the current needs in the Commonwealth in healthcare? 
Wow. Um, that is an enormous list. And uh, there are infrastructure opportunities and there are crises related opportunities and often they overlap. Right. One of the most important things that we need to do is um, change our mental health care system. And that is pervasive for every age group and almost every issue we're facing in the Commonwealth and something that honestly has not been accomplished. And it's we're so far behind now that I think we need very disruptive change. And okay. I believe that one of the major reasons we are in the situation we're in, and to describe that situation, we have a uh, nine mental health hospitals that the state owns. Mm -hmm. They are administrative through legis. They are administrative. I'm sorry. I mean, this is this. Um, they are administrated through uh, legislation. Healthcare doesn't move on an annual basis, waiting for. Mm -hmm. Um, allocation of dollars and priority of needs that are often trivialized in comparison to all the other needs in the state of Virginia. Right. We are um, clinically and based on how we achieve the outcomes we want for, for citizens of Virginia, we have to be community-based. And we have been absolutely um, way too slow in making that transition. We have because of all of these issues, we cannot keep up with current best practices in our state hospitals. We can't keep up with staffing. We no longer are the bed of last resort. So if we're going to have a practical public-private solution where private industry is taking on a lot of these burdens, it should be defined that way. But we haven't defined it that way. So there are, we need to make, we need to leapfrog instead of drag mental health in Virginia to where we need to be. And we need to do that based on evidence-based practices, mm -hmm. trauma-informed care, mm -hmm. and best nationwide recognized practices. And we can't keep doing it the way we have been, which is we look at what we have and we try and make it work better. That's why we're not getting different outcomes. We're doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. We have to define the outcomes we want and we have to build the system from where we are now to what it needs to be to accomplish those outcomes. And that's how we fix it. But we need to be in schools. We need to be in the community. We need to take care of people who have uh, developmental delays and, and require other kinds of, um, of care in the community. And it really, it borders on egregious to me as a clinician where we are in mental health and where I think we need to be. Let, let's uh, for the one. audience for the audience build that out a little bit. What's it going to take? I mean, we all know there's a there's a crisis in mental health. It's it's everywhere. Uh, you know, Michelle and I took our, our youngest up to New York for an internship this weekend. We saw mental health, you know, mentally unwell people on yeah. the streets just living there, uh, and, and it was it was tragic. You know, you walk by these people who you don't know at what point in their life they were. In, in this capacity, but they seem to, you know, just live, exist in this, in this realm. It's also, you know, dangerous for public health. It's dangerous for their health. Uh, what do we have to do to build, um, you know, basically from the ground up, a, a real, vibrant, productive, evidence-based mental health system? We need subject matter experts. And I will tell you, legislators are not them. 
They mean well, but we are not subject matter experts on how you build a state-based system to provide the outcomes that we want. Right. You, need, um, you need people who have done this across the state. We need to bring in some expert help. And we need a eviscerating evaluation of what we have and what we lack. And we can this, we don't have to build a new wheel. Let me start with that. We do not have to build this wheel. Okay. We need the people who know how the wheel rolls to come in and help us put together a wheel based on what we have and where we want to go. Okay. So we need we need an evidence-based we we and I mean I'm just going to be candid because that's how I always am. We can't rely on the expertise of the stakeholders and the legislators and even the agencies because we all have so many other jobs we're doing. We need people that know exactly how to do this for states and can help us build a, a plan that we can all engage in. And it's going to be like a collaborative process in legislation. There's going to be things about it we all love right. and everybody's going to walk away a little unhappy, but we're going to serve Virginia better and we're going to get, and listen, it's not just people on the street. That's a complex homeless problem. Oh, absolutely. We're talking about absolutely. families. We're talking about oh, yeah. children. We're oh, yeah. talking regular, you know, let's not, let's, let's, we can talk about children in poverty and children in need and children at disadvantage. Right. We should be serving them all the time, but right. we have an epidemic of people who are overwhelmed with the stress of the last two years. Oh, and absolutely. we need to be serving everybody. Well, I think one of the keys to that is to the everybody approach is, first of all, destigmatizing uh, mental health. You know, when we when the pandemic brought up our physical health, um, you know, and everyone's like, oh, all right, did you go to the, did you get, did you get your vaccines and you did you get, how did, how did it affect you? And we're, we're all into the physical health. We all get that. Remember, I remember you growing up, if a kid broke his arm, everyone couldn't wait to sign the kid's cast, right? That was always like a big thing, especially mm -hmm. when we had a different cast growing up. They were all like plastered and this kind of stuff. But today, uh, we don't apply that almost celebratory um, um, behavior when someone's tackling a mental health issue. You know, even just going to a therapist, uh, we go, oh, what's wrong? What's wrong? Something wrong? Yeah. <laughs> trying to figure my life out, right? You know, if you go talk to a priest or a, or a minister, you know, you're just figuring out life. And we don't celebrate people uh, solving their own mental health problems or just mental problems or emotional problems. I mean, it's, it's so human and yet it's so stigmatized. Why do you think that is? Um, well, you know, that, that is a universal problem internationally inside Virginia, across the country. And I, I think there are a lot of reasons that that is. I think that there's um, a failure of people to recognize their own mental health mm -hmm. and they think they're better than they are. I think there's a perception that if you, you know, mental health is a continuum and oh, yeah. the, and I can tell you as a clinician, the earlier you're intervening and treating that, um, the, the, the faster you're better. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we need to do there, but I have to separate that because that's, see, here's what happens. When we start talking about mental health, we start going down alleys of issues that are outside the power of the state to right. fix. Right. And well, the not, state has to fix that. its infrastructure. And I'll tell you the other really big thing we need to change that will change what you're talking about that the state can do. Right, right now, the state divides mental health from physical health. Mm -hmm. We have DBHDS and we have DMAS. 
They're right. not divided. No. They're, they're intersected. They're, and, and inextricably linked. Right. And the way our system is built is that they are served separately, which That's is not, in an evidence-based world and where medicine is now, it's wrong. And we fix that with the process. And we make, and in my world, we make sure we get back to that idea of patient-centered medical home. And instead of having mental health somewhere else, we embed the workforce of mental health, which by the way, we have to build. Right. We embed them, the workforce of mental health. We don't try and have them in both places. We put everybody in a, in a patient-centered medical home and we do psychiatric, psychological, and physical health all in the same place as it should be done. Yeah, and, and that's that how we fix it from the state side. And, and that seems to me far down the road of not treating it in its earliest form by, by, by recognizing in ourselves that, you know, as I was telling a, a friend of mine, you know, why wouldn't you go see a therapist or um, a, a priest, a minister, whatever, or just talk to somebody, uh, talk about your problems or some issues you might have, questions you have. Uh, we, we look at, we change our oil in our cars more frequently than we check under our own hoods as far as what's going on. And we don't celebrate it nearly enough to say, hey, it's okay. In, in fact, it's natural to have these, you know, these, these uh, mental questions or unhealthy patterns or behaviors and why you're just trying to figure out life in general. And, um, it, it, and it can snowball out of control. And then it becomes uh, you know, more of a public health issue on an individual basis. But I agree with you completely that the mental health and physical health has to be uh, brought under one one agency. And then I ask about it all the time. If it's part of if it's part of the global as it should be, yeah. then you're you are having that conversation with your clinician, and your clinician has the skilled workforce yeah. in the office that you're going to. Right now, if you want to get mental health, a lot of times you have to go somewhere else, and that alone has a stigma. If yeah. you have a stigma, if you have a heart condition. Because right. you have to go see a cardiologist. Well, What's if you have to go do? somewhere else to see, you know, to get that kind of help. And you know what I tell my friend, what I tell my patients and my friends is that you think when you go to see a counselor or a therapist that they're going to ask you about your childhood and they're going to dissect your whole life and they're going to analyze you and tell you what you don't want to hear. Good. What I want you to go to, well, I say you don't need that. I say go to a counselor because they have training to give you tools mm -hmm. to make your life easier. You don't have to recreate your own wheel. Right. They can give you shortcuts. You don't have to do the school of hard knocks. Let them give you shortcuts yeah. to coping with what you have to cope with. They don't all have to be these creepy interrogators that are delving into your childhood. They actually can be just really good mechanics that exactly. can help you change your oil. Great. I mean, I love the analogy. Thank you for sticking with it. <laughs> Or checking mm -hmm. under the hood and doing the mm -hmm. oil changes, that kind of stuff. Let's uh, let's transition to education because obviously education is linked to healthcare and mental health. Um, where do things stand in the Commonwealth of Virginia? We saw the budget come out that uh, capped, in effect, effectively capped a school choice tax credit program for at-risk children. What's going on in education in Virginia, Senator? Um, education in Virginia has had its comeuppance, in my opinion. In the report that was written by the Department of Education and released last week or the week before. Um, and we have seen the honesty gap between mm. how we are measuring the readiness of our children to go on to any higher second post-secondary, post-high school education, whether it's community college, licensure, certification, or four-year. And we 
are pretending that we are preparing our children well. And every parent in Virginia knows this truth gap exists when their kids are in school because they see their kids are struggling, but they're being told that they're above the average performance metrics. And so we now have an accurate assessment of the challenges we have in Virginia uh, of, of doing what K-12 should be doing for education. And we have the opportunity to fix that. So I think that's the number one thing on the horizon. Um, you know, where we've been going with education for so long is not where we need to be. And we seem to be derailed by the wrong perspective. We sh- education is one of the social determinants of health. I'm glad, I like the way you introduced that. When I ran for office, one of the things that really highly motivated for me is that I want population health, but population health is not access to health insurance. It is not even seeing your doctor. Population health is a complex matrix of a multitude of variables that you have to have to have access to the American dream. And as a Republican, I believe in that dream. But we are depriving, we are pre-selecting people who have access to that dream by the zip code they're born into Mm. because of the social determinants of health. Do they have healthy food? Do they have a safe place Mm -hmm. to live? Do they have an education that prepares them to have access to, you know, what it takes to succeed in America. And really all it takes is a good education and a little bit of grit. Um, And so we're not, we're not making that happen. And so I think in education, the number one thing on the horizon is that Governor Youngkin is doing what he said he was going to do. And he is dissecting the process. He is going to raise the standards. He is going to hold us accountable for performance metrics. And he's going to make sure our kids are ready to participate in the workforce. And they value education as a possession, as an attribute, as access for them, and not just a ticket they're punching where they have to talk about how they feel. Well, yeah, it's a, it's, I think we've overcomplicated education as a former educator myself um, and talking to teachers who, have, who are leaving the profession in droves right now, even uh. though, and they'll say, look, it's not to pay. I, I, they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm making pretty good money for teaching, you know, uh, this one uh, high school friend of mine, she said she was making about mid 60s down in, down in Hilton Head uh, teaching kindergarten. And she said, it's not, it's not the kids and it's not the money. It's not even the parents. It's the fact that everything is so overregulated, um, and all I, and all the paperwork I have to do to check all the boxes just to educate kids. And she goes, "I love the kids, but I just can't keep doing this. It's just I'm not. It's not worth my time anymore. It's not worth my stress. That's why you know." And she goes, "And that's what's happening all over. It's like teachers are leaving because it's just so much work uh, to teach kids. It's really." all these metrics and data that they have to submit, but it's also the lesson planning in each section for each grade that they have like three lesson plans for each class that they teach within the class because they're trying to, they've differentiated all the kids and they're trying to put all the different levels in the same classroom without, without, which I think is pedagogically stupid. You know, it's just, it's just not working for, for a lot of teachers. And I, unfortunately, and just a bit, a bit of my rant, I think we've gotten into a place where we are pitting parents against teachers rather than having them join together and surround that child with a good education and a lot of emotional support. Right. And I will say, try and make sure I stay on track to respond to each of those things. The first thing is, you know, we have stripped teachers of the things that motivate them to teach. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're like nurses and doctors. There is an inspiration to go into teaching. Yeah. There is a desire 
of, of what they think they can accomplish in touching people's lives and improving their futures. And we have stripped them of creativity. We've stripped them of dignity. They had to pass people they didn't think they had to pass. They have been so demeaned. Mm -hmm. Um, They have been aligned with the teachers unions. And I can tell you so many of my patients are teachers. They are not the teachers unions. They are the people who are defending our children, but they have no voice. And we, you know, if you can't practice the artistry of what you do and you can't have those, you know, you got to love work enough that you love it even when you hate it. And the things that pull you out of a hole in work are those emotional moments where you go, I did something good. We've taken those away from teachers. And so we've got to get back to that. How do we get back to that? We change the primary conversation about education. And I can tell you, I have for the last seven years been beaten over the head by the Democrat talking points of don't talk to me about education until you've returned funding to the pre-recession rates. I've gotten that said to me at doors when I knock doors. I don't even know what it means. And I tell, you know, everything is about you stripped education in 2007 when we had a recession and don't even talk to me about what you want to do in education unless you put us back to that spending level. I'm like, and what are they going to do with the money? Tell me that. What are the outcomes that you expect to get out of education for your kids? Are there no strings tied to that money? Because that's how we've been admin. That's how we've been legislating. We're going to like, we're going to give you all this money and we trust you. We trust you to spend it well. Well, we shouldn't trust them. You know what? Trust, but verify. And we need to have metrics that we hold them accountable for, performance outcomes for kids, not the metrics we're holding them accountable for now that strip them of their dignity and their creativity like you have to perform to the SOLs. We, you know, that we need these, we have over 90 languages in Henrico. Mm -hmm. Do you know how far our teachers are advancing kids No, you don't, because we're not using growth measures. We're not saying this is where the child started and this is how much you grow them. We're saying you have to get them to this level, but they may have been three years behind that and they're never going to achieve that level. So we need to change what we're talking about in education. And what we need to talk about is we need to have individualized education so that every child succeeds. And if we shift that from spending enough money and we start looking at every child and how they grow, and we make sure that all of our schools are performing, which is what SOLs are for. And by the way, they're not because we lowered the metrics as Governor Youngkin has demonstrated in this report from the Department of Education. Then we can start having the opportunity to celebrate our teachers that are doing amazing work, but we don't talk about it because we don't measure it. Mm. And so individualized education, let the teachers, you know, let, let them do what they do well and stop stripping them of their power. And I think, think we can really have a conversation about how we can grow Virginia and have the workforce we need. And you know what? Have the kids that get the degrees and the credentials stay in Virginia because they're all leaving now. Well, that's a, those are great points. Uh, you know, I, I've, when I measured my students and I, I have my old grade books, I go back every, you know, four or five years, I think of looking at it and the progress that they made throughout the year. And, and my success as a teacher was only measured by myself with respect to if I got the kids interested in the subject and they came alive and they couldn't wait mm-hmm. to come to class and discuss what we were discussing. I taught history and government. Um, you know, that to me was successful because in the end, if they're 
if they love to learn, you get out of the way uh, and just, just focus them in a direction to, to keep learning. And they'll keep going because it's a lifetime of learning and instruction and credentialing and all these different things they have to get in their lives to get you know, professionally where they want to be. But ultimately, um, from, a, from a life development standpoint, if you get someone who likes to learn, yeah, just get out of their way. Uh, it's tough to put that, that and to policy, obviously, at the state level. But I, I think we do need to turn this thing around a little bit and get, get kids not just you know, robotically uh, educated uh, with information, but also comes with the life skills and the development on a human level and their socialization skills. We've gotten away from that. Mm-hmm. And we, and it's, I think it's one of the reasons why we're having the discussion on mental health. Let's switch over to economy. Uh, it all inter, intersects and in, eventually in the economy. We all see economic output uh, starting to slow down here. Inflation is kicking us right in the teeth no matter where we go. I just, I'm up in Alexandria today. I chose not to drive up here. I took the train instead because only $13 each way versus, <laughs> versus paying for gas and parking. We're changing our behaviors as a result. People keep posting online the gas prices. Where do you, what are you seeing in, in Western Henrico County, Chester? field uh suburbs that uh, on inflation and what are you hearing from your constituents well i am i am seeing the framework for a disastrous future and you know i think what really terrifies me is that things are really really bad now but the bad now is setting us up for disaster in the future Mm -hmm. we already have all of our supply chain issues that we can't get products here Every product's going to be more expensive. It's going to be more expensive to transmit it, you know, to 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 get it here. And so I um I'm extraordinarily concerned and worried, and I feel somewhat helpless because so much of this has to be done at a federal level, mm-hmm. and there's so little that we can do at the state. Um, certainly to curtail expenses. Um, you know, economic development is one of the things that we can that we can do so that people have jobs. But you know, they're going to be less investments by businesses because they're going to have less, you know, less surplus to invest. And so I, I, I get very, um, you know, you know, deeply concerned when we talk about this because, again, I am action focused. I am, you know, how do I? How can I do something? to make this better. And I feel very helpless to find a way to improve that because I feel so many of these are federal changes. Why we don't have our oil pipeline when Russia does, and why we don't have energy independence, why I hear talking heads on the TV talking about this is going to drive us to a greener economy as if financial ruin for the families that live in my district is a justifiable exchange for their political agenda. I just, I I don't, sometimes in moments like this, I wonder if I'm in the same America as the people that are making decisions, but I know my constituents are, and I know they're just as angry as I am. And I think you're going to see some federal changes. Well, we also see, you know, the, the, the current administration, you know, stopping Keystone Pipeline, uh, the the underlying political reality of stopping the Atlantic Coast pipeline, uh, the Mountain Valley pipeline, all of these things could have been part of the infrastructure package that created a more vibrant energy, uh, you know, policy infrastructure for the for the for the country as well. But it's also it also emboldens the uh, bad actors in the oil and natural gas field to continually raise their prices because they can, because if, if America's innovation and investment and infrastructure are off the table, 
why would you not raise your prices? And that's all they're doing is, is shutting down the spigots. I mean, and then the president of the United States wants to go to Saudi Arabia and ask them to increase supply when we have supply here and could be producing American jobs. It just doesn't make any sense. And why would we not want to have those relationships with Europe and those countries who are trying to get away from Russian oil and natural gas? We could be supplying it to them. It, it boggles the mind. It does. And it's it's always interesting for me because, you know, I, I spend my whole life as a doctor figuring out how people work, how to motivate them, how to get them on the same page for the outcomes that they want and that I can show them a path to. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about how we think. And I've learned over the years that the only power we have in life and the power that is infinite, in, infinite is the power within. I can't control what anybody else does. Right. I can only control what I do. And that's responding to them. That's leadership. And I have to always very clearly, you know, there's, there's a prayer. Give me the strength to change what I can't accept and accept what I can't change. Everything conceptually that, you know, is reasoned and is very basic and kind of primary self, I can apply to politics. And when I look at this energy, you know, kind of issue for America, and I think about this, the power we have is the power within. Energy independence is the leverage we have over the entire rest of the world. Of course. And we have abdicated it in favor of trying to think that our brute force, like we have any left, like our influence as as what? I mean, nobody, I mean, the Democrats don't even like America anymore. I mean, what is the leverage we have to get OPEC to do what we want? They've held us by the throat for years. Russia, are you kidding me? We, we are playing a stupid game. And it's so self-evident to me because I can see it on a personal level. I see how it works in individuals. I see how it works in communities. And I understand how it works in politics. And again, I have no ability to control the misguided decisions this federal government is making, and it's enormously frustrating. Well, Senator, in a year, a year or two, you're going to have federal elections. I'm not running for them, if that's what you're saying. <laughs> I'm I, not saying anything. I have to I be in an arena. Coming up, right. elections matter. But see, I do, they are, and I'm going to help. I'm going to help Republicans win, and I'm so grateful that my congressman is Rob Whitman. He is an amazingly accomplished, articulate, well-read, studied leadership. He has re-inspired me to have faith in the federal government that I haven't had in a long time. Okay. And, and I have to say, when I hear him speak, and he's running this year, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure he gets reelected as if my he needs my help. He is solvent in and of himself. But he is an amazing leader, but I um, I also know that you have to set expectations you can accomplish for you to feel like you can be effective, and I can accomplish things at the state level. I don't know if anybody can accomplish things in Congress or, um, or in the Senate, but I pray for them. <laughs> so no run for U.S. Senate in 24. No, mm -mm. 26. No, not me. I no. love, I, you know what else? I love medicine. I okay. believe in being a citizen legislator. I believe my roots, you know, the reason I'm even in office is because I worked in my community for so long, raising my kids, working with my patients, trying to run my business, you know, doing the best I could do to give of myself. And right. I still felt frustrated. And yeah. I thought maybe if I had a seat at the table in the conversations, I can influence 
the outcomes better. And so it is my community engagement that put me in the, you know, on the path to run for the Senate of Virginia. And it is my community engagement that makes me a good servant. I have accountability to a, I call it my focus group of women every week that I talk to in my office, 100 to 125 women. And they tell me exactly what I need to know to be accountable to my- Wait, community. wait, wait, what is this? You have a, you have a, a group of women every week, 120? My patients. Oh, 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 <laughs> I thought you had your own like, you know. Well, chicons, I do. Uh... They're my own little focus group and they oh, tell yeah. me exactly okay. what yeah, they yeah, think yeah. about what's going right. on in the state of Virginia. That makes more sense. I didn't know if you had like this, you know, walking into a room of 120 women. Um, daunting uh, task for anyone. Um, now, um, how many babies have you delivered over the years now? What's you know, the... I don't keep track. One of my partners, one of my senior partners, when I started, he wrote down in a book every baby he ever delivered. And I admired that. But I was also a mother of four and a working mom. So I never wrote it down. So my best guesstimates based on looking at numbers over the years are somewhere around 2,500 to 3,000. Wow. Wow. Best job ever. That, that has to be an extraordinary uh, moment. I mean, we, we've had four of our own and every single one is a, is a blessing and it's different than everyone. Everyone is extremely different. You, know, you give me goosebumps talking about it. I, I was a nurse before I went to medicine. And mm. when I talk about being task oriented, mm. the, um, the, the three things in my life that galvanized me as a task oriented person are my mother being a nurse and being a mother myself. Cause you, you just, you know, you just set those metrics and you have to get them done. You can't fail your children. Right. Oh, yeah. um, and you have to get your work done as a nurse. And so every, you know, I, I learned a lot before I ever went to medical school about how to, you know, reach people. Mm. Um, but, you know, when, when I, I didn't think I'd ever be an OBGYN. I was an, I was an ICU nurse and I'd had, I had a baby. I was nine, I was eight months pregnant when I interviewed for medical school. Yeah. That, was, that was the part you're bringing it back to me. Our conversation at that Starbucks, I'm thinking, you did what? And you, you did when? I had a 10 I my wife doing it too. I don't, two in medical cool. school. So I kind of, I, you know, I, I kind of knew all this. I'm like, I don't ever, life is such a miracle. And I, birth is such a miracle. I don't ever want to have that be my like everyday job. And then I had this OBGYN and she delivered my second baby, my third, my fourth baby. And she was from Iran and she, oh delivered those babies, you would have thought it was the first child she ever held. She really? was so inspired. And she made me recognize that it wouldn't get old and that I could, I could be an OBGYN like her. Right. And I could, I could make that miraculous moment. And when you're in that room with that, that, that those parents and this baby comes forth, which is Honestly, I always say if this were science fiction, nobody would believe it. It's, so <laughs> it's, 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 it's crazy. It's amazing. <laughs> and that, that baby comes out and the parents look at it and the father cries and the mother oh. looks down. <laughs> I, honest to God, there's nothing like that in the world. No. In that moment in time, that family is perfect. Yeah. Doesn't matter if they're married, doesn't matter who the family <laughs> is. Those three people, oh my gosh, it's amazing. It's yeah, you've, you've, you've brought me to the uh, the point of tears here to remember some of those moments. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a funny, just to break break it back a little bit. Our third was was on the way and the nurses were there and Michelle was about five centimeters dilated. And, she, and we, the priest wanted to see this. 
He wanted oh. to see a birth. And uh, it was early. It was like six o'clock in the morning. And I called him. I said, look, we're about five centimeters. So we're, we're OK. They don't think it'll be here for maybe we'll be here for another you know, three or four hours. He said, OK, great. Michelle went through a contraction. She went from five centimeters to 10 mm-hmm. centimeters. Third in, baby. In a, in a contraction. <laughs> right. And and I'm colorblind. I'm just going to put that out there for the audience. And my wife's crying because of the pain. Um, and she was going natural uh, this time. That was her first all natural. Um, and she and her mascara is running. But because I'm colorblind, I think it's blood. Oh. It, so and I turned to the nurse. I'm like, is my wife going to die? And she's like, no, why? I'm like, well, she's bleeding from the eyes. And I always see in the movies that when they, people bleed from the eyes, they, they, they typically die. She goes, that's mascara. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> well, that's the other great thing about my job. Those nurses I work with, people, uh, you know, honestly, the people that work in the hospital, certainly there are people who don't meet the standard, but they are, you know, I made my, my kids volunteer in the hospital and especially my daughters. I wanted them to see what powerful women were like. Oh, yeah. These Mm. nurses are smart and funny and multitaskers, I'm telling you. And they are the greatest, greatest people to work with in the world. It's just, it's just amazing. I bet when when Nora came out, they said, okay, dad, what is it? (laughs) I said, I don't know. What is that? (laughs) I love that. I love it. It's sorry, I didn't, to, to I didn't get to see time. Mary Catherine when Mary yeah. Catherine came in. Well, she was a C-section and she was all papoosed up and handed over to us straight away. And William uh, came out had, you know, it was it was a, it was a, not a not a pleasant scene. But mm-hmm. um, and it, oh, it's a boy. OK. You know, and, but I looked at the girl. and They're like, what is that? I'm like, I don't know. What is that? Is something supposed to happen here? Their legs are up <laughs> on top. And sometimes there's a it's hard to tell. I know. But. <laughs> When the parents don't know, I make them tell me too. I think that's fun. They go, well, that's a girl, dad. I was like, okay, it's a girl. <laughs> look again. Look, look. I didn't know. <laughs> it was so funny. Anyway, Dr. Senator Siobhan Dunham, it's been a real pleasure to having you on here. Deep discussions on issues. And I and I, I thank you for your time today on the VIP podcast brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free, which I am the executive director. Uh, please subscribe, like, and share uh, throughout all your social media on YouTube. Spotify and Apple. Thank you, Siobhan. Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. You have a great day.